was. And about three years ago at uh, Jason's Pub in, in uh, Manhattan, there was an evening. They had these evenings where they do sort of tributes to various artists. Okay. And all these people come and do maybe 10 or 15 of the, the best. And yeah. there was a Tom Petty evening that I went to and with my wife and we got pretty drunk and yeah. had the best time. And it was also really sad because we really miss him. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, a couple of things. I mean, I have a long history with him. I mean, I, as you could tell me, I'm a little younger than you. But I mean, I was raised. I saw him at the Boston, the original Boston Garden before they switched it to a bank. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that must have been like late nineties, but then I saw his very, his second to last concert ever wow. um, here at the Greek theater in Berkeley. Wow. Um, and I mean, you know, they, they put out a four and a half hour documentary about him running down a dream. You ever see it? Yes, I did. Yeah. I, I was Oh yeah. I mean, that is a piece of art within itself, that documentary. Agreed. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, one, one of the best books I have, is Conversations with Tom Petty, written by a gentleman named Paul Zolo, who wrote a fascinating book, and we had him on the podcast, called Songwriters on Songwriting. Wow. This guy talked to Dylan, Joni Mitchell, Joan Baez, Paul Sun, in-depth interviews, you know, how do you do this? How do you write that? Um, so he was a fascinating guy, but he was especially, him and Tom Petty were very close. Wow. Yeah, he, yeah, yeah. He is sorely missed. Oh yeah. Um, do you play music? Are you a musician at all outside of cartooning? No, I'm not. I've never, I've never. I I took piano lessons at my mother's insistence when I was a little boy, but I have these really small hands, and uh, it was very frustrating. So that was about it, except for the recorder, of course. Um, yeah. But I, um, I, for a, well, it's a long story, but um, I was a huge music fan and addict up until the early 70s when I came home one day to my loft in downtown Boston to discover that my 150 LPs had been stolen along with my stereo. And uh, that kind of heartbreaking thing, I, I stopped being the avid addict that I had been. So it's been more on and off, um, pretty much on and off. I, I did a cartoon a few years ago of... Uh, it's a, the tablet cartoons as a child of 60s watches the Grammys and it's a picture of me and I'm watching the television and my thought balloon is going, who, who, who? Literally. So, I mean, I'm 34 years old and I look at some artists today and I'm like, who, who the fuck is, I mean, who the fuck is that? And then it's weird because now in music, especially right as we're talking, there are artists that were very popular 20 years ago that are now re- you know, back in the main, I mean, it, music's an interesting art form. Um, I guess we're kind of going all over the place right now, but let me kind of dial it into what you do. Is cartooning a similar art form? Um, is it once you start, is it kind of, you, you know, is it, it seems to be a pretty straightforward process from the beginning. You know, talk about that. Well, I, I don't really know if it's like music. I think it's pretty unique. That The unique thing about the single panel cartoon, which is what I do, is how fast it happens. Um, I can come here, sit down, squeeze my brain, get an idea, draw it. My work is done. And um, that process is so addictive um, that, uh, you know, I've been doing it now for 50 years. Um, 
And that's the thing that I think is really unique about it is how things can happen really fast and um, depends a lot on your ability to sort of mine who you are and uh, just kind of meditate as a, as, a, as a thinking process. So I don't know, I've, since I've never played music, I don't know if there's anything similar, but I know that trusting your instincts and not overthinking and all of that comes into play. And I assume it's true of music as well. So, so well, take us back to your beginning. I, I hear a little bit of an accent. Uh, where are you from? You know, how did you grow up? How did you get into? I'm from the other side of the Brooklyn Bridge. I, I grew up in the Upper West Side of Manhattan. Um, and uh, I started doing cartoons when I was six or seven years old. Um, and as I say in my book, um, I knew at that point that's what I really wanted to do. But my father especially and my mother, they were uh, very uh, typical Russian immigrants who had a very different idea of what their son was going to turn out to be. And that pressure was irresistible at home. And so I sort of abandoned my dream of being a cartoonist, even though I continued to do it. And I went through college and graduate school, a couple of years of graduate school, well, a year of graduate school in something else. And then it's a, it's a story, but I quit. And at age 22 or 23, I decided I'm going to be a cartoonist. And the great thing about that is that I didn't need a degree. I didn't need anything. All I needed, you know, was a piece of paper and a pen. I'm a cartoonist. Mm-hmm. And so that's when I really started uh, trying to make it as a career uh, at that age. What year, roughly? Uh, oh, geez, I'm sorry to date myself. That would be 1971. 1971, New York City? No, I was living in Boston. I okay. Got- to graduate school there and I dropped out. So Aerosmith and, wasn't even a band yet. No, but uh, uh, I, uh, there were a lot of great bands still playing there. Um, there's a there's a bar called Jack's, which was an amazing place where I first saw people like Bonnie Raitt and oh, wow. the Cars and people like that. Uh, but anyway, uh, I, I um, was living in Boston, and the, Boston was just a hotbed of alternative stuff, including several alternative newspapers. And um, that's where I first got published. And eventually, uh, after about a year, I started being the cartoonist for the Boston Phoenix, which was sort of the village voice of Boston. And I, I was their regular cartoonist for over 30 years. Um, magazine, the, the newspaper died about a decade ago, but, um, and I was there till 93 or so. Mm-hmm. Um, so when you started cartooning, let's just st- stick with 1971. <clears throat> are there contemporaries? Are there people that maybe, you know, our viewers could, you know, dive into other works who, what's going on at the time? What are you writing about? Well, uh, of course it was a very scary time. Um, and, uh, the, you know, it was hard to get away from the war and the draft. And um, and also at the same time, living in Cambridge, where I was living, uh, there was a lot of drugs and a lot of people having a lot of fun and not really focusing too much on what was going to happen in the future, but just trying, uh, uh, some, something's happening here. Oh, yeah. It isn't exactly clear. That was sort of the atmosphere. And uh, so it was a great time. 
And there was this sense that I don't think people have now when you were young that you could do anything. And um, you could, I just decided one day I was going to be a fucking cartoonist. Yeah. And, uh, I, I, I was able to make it happen because I just was easy to make connections and um, it was just a different world. And so it was, it was a great time. Uh, and my cartoons tended to be slightly political and slightly psychedelic. And when I look back now, rather poorly drawn, but um, uh, it was a great time to make a decision like that, to do something silly that had no expectation of success. Um, mm -hmm. So, yeah. And was the plan to stick in Boston or, I mean, did you eventually go back to New York? I mean, you know, you said you dropped out of graduate school. So if you're not going to school in Boston, I'm not sure why else you want to be in Boston. <laughs> Don't get me there. I, I completely My agree. mother, I know Boston very well. Yeah, very well. Um, I won't say anything bad about the city that I desperately wanted to leave, even though I lived there for 15 years. Oh, um, wow. Yeah. Okay. It's mainly because there were a number of reasons. Number one, financial. Um, it was just really hard. I knew I wanted to be in New York. I had to be in New York. But uh, the two things that were stopping me was I just didn't know how I could afford it. And also my parents were here and I just didn't want to have that lack of distance between myself and my parents. But eventually living in Boston uh, in 1983 just became totally unbearable. And so uh, a friend called me and said he'd found a loft that we could share in uh, uh, the East Village. And um, I filled a truck with my stuff and came down and have lived here ever since and managed somehow to achieve an understanding with my family so that I could feel a little free from their influence. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean that phone call doesn't happen very much often these days. Uh, hey, man, I got a I got a spot in the East Village. You can come a uh, crash. Well, we, we were immediately threatened with eviction uh, by the Chinese landlord, who, uh, unbeknownst to us, it was an illegal sublet. So, yeah, that's what happens. So you for thirteen years that period in Boston, were you solely doing cartooning? I mean, it was a time where you were able to make a living completely by doing that. Well. Again, I, what was great was that I had a bunch of really good friends and we had a sort of cooperative existence um, uh, working on similar things. And so everybody supported everybody else. So even though I made, I don't even want to think about how little money I made as a cartoonist, I was able to, to survive and not have to get a regular job. I've only had one in my entire life. Yeah. And... Um, I was able to get by and also I started another career which lasted about 20 years as a fine artist, uh, sculptor. And I um, started doing that there. And when I came to New York, I had a gallery for a while um, and pursued that as well uh, until I stopped doing that, um, just did cartoons. How did that even come about? Was sculpting something you had always been into outside of cartooning or was it just, you met a girl and she was like, hey, let's take a sculpting class. <laughs> <laughs> no. Uh, the thing about me, I, 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 my book very much is about my struggle with my father and his influence. And I, even though I had decided to be a cartoonist, I had a deep reservoir of guilt that I wasn't doing something serious and important. I was doing something, first of all, that came easily, and that was totally silly. And so uh, 
the way I dealt with that was I said, okay, well, I'll do something serious too, but I don't want to do any of that other stuff. I know I'll be an artist, a serious artist, as well as a cartoonist. And so I, having no art training, no training in sculpture whatsoever, I'd long been an admirer of um, sculpture that's made out of found materials um, and uh, collages and assemblages like that. And I thought, well, that's easy. There's a dumpster down the street. And so I started putting together sculptures like that. And um, the trouble was that uh, deep down, I was never really committed to it because it's really hard to get your sense of humor into that art form. And Mm. humor has always been my number one sense of who I am. So uh, um, I eventually abandoned the, in 1997, I stopped making art and just stuck to making cartoons. You brought up up the word humor. and, you know, we're, we're recording this in the beginning of 2022, I think, right? That's the year this is. Uh, you know, humor seems to be be a thing that people talk about in the past, right? I feel like we're living in a very humorless society, at least the world I see. I'm the same way. In my writing, I emphasize the humor. Um, has it been hard to maintain that sense of humor throughout the years? Or, I mean, is that something... It's something I can always fall back on to make myself laugh, to get through a difficult situation. I mean, you said you couldn't get it through in your sculpting. Have you always, is that cartooning always been an outlet for that humor inside of you? Absolutely. And um, whatever happens out in the world, uh, it's a fundamental part of who I am. Um, Now, I'm not, I don't like crack people up all the time with jokes and stuff, but it is my way of being in the world. you know, people often ask that ridiculous question, where do you get your ideas? And basically, it's just from living my life. And there's a little part of me I think of as my cartoon brain that's always on in any situation I'm in, anything I observe where I think, is there a cartoon in this? Is there something funny that I could use? So I've just been that person and will never stop being that person. I mean, who knows what I'll do with this interview. I may very well make a cartoon about it. So, so we travel through time and now you said 1983, Boston, East Village, phone call, loft. The mid 80s in New York City was probably a pretty interesting time. Um, probably very different than the early 70s, I'd imagine crime going up down at that time in New York, you know, especially where you're living. I mean, what, what was that scene like in the mid eighties? I can tell you that, you know, my parents, my father uh, achieved his lifelong dream of moving from the upper West side to the upper East side where all his customers lived. And so they lived that kind of existence. I was down on uh, Christie street on the lower East side. And the night I got, to my loft after we found out that they were going to try to evict us. I was standing at the window, looking out my window, talking back in Boston to my therapist for our last session, which was going to be a phone session. I'm saying, you know, I'm standing here talking to you and I'm looking out on the street and it looks like there is a huge uh, bazaar going on out front. Hundreds and hundreds of people selling and buying drugs and there's a completely naked man directly across from my window and nobody's even bothering to look at him. And that was the scene, especially in that, in the Lower East Side, things were, things were pretty 
pretty crazy at that yeah. time. Um, and then I'd like get on the subway and go up to see my parents on Fifth Avenue. And I thought, whoa, this is very different New York. Um, and my father once said to me, you know, I spent my life trying to get the hell out of that neighborhood and do a better thing for you. And what happens? You wind up back in the same neighborhood I tried to get out of. You know, so there's a lot of uh, confusion in my head about all that. But um, yeah. Sounds like my Jewish mother from the Bronx. You know, I get it. Uh, so you're, you move into New York, you know, obviously, you know, you, you would start working for the New Yorker. How does that even happen? I mean, does that happen at that time? I mean, do you move to New York with the sole purpose of only cartooning? It, basically, yeah. Um, and I'd always, my dream from the minute I drew my first cartoon was to be in the New Yorker. Um, as a kid, I used to, draw cartoons, cut them out. And then when my parents were done with the magazine, I'd take my cartoons and paste them into the magazine so I could pretend I was in it. Yeah. Um, but my sad story, which many people know, is that it took me 25 years of submitting before I sold my first one, which was in 1997. Um, and that was sort of a dream come, a lifetime dream come true. Um, and, uh, Ever since I've just been, I never ceased to pinch myself that I actually achieved this thing I always wanted to do. So it was a long, hard slog, a, a long time of feeling uh, that I wasn't where I wanted to be. And then I finally got there, which was great. So, mm -hmm. And you were submitting to the New Yorker this whole time, all those years, just pretty kind of just pumping them out and yeah, I mean, because if you're a cartoonist, like a single panel cartoonist like me, a magazine cartoonist, there's the New Yorker and there's everything else. And so even though you get discouraged, you never give up because um, it's 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 the, the, the obvious goal, the place you really need to be. And um, so I just kept submitting and I, I kind of thought, you know, someday somebody's going to notice and the editor changed in 1997 to someone I knew who I knew liked my work. And that was my ticket. So, uh -huh. What was the cartoon? Uh, well, it's kind of funny. It's, uh, it, it, uh, it's a, it's a, like a meditation group and, uh, the leader is up in front and, um, there's, uh, uh he has a sign which says what the name of the workshop is. And it's, uh, the journey to enlightenment. And one of the people is raising their hands and saying, are we there yet? And there I was. Are we, I was there, finally. Uh -huh. so, but it was very appropriate that that was the first one. And you had mentioned a little earlier, you always have this little cartoon part of your brain kind of turned on. I mean, with that, it, it seems like the ideas can almost be endless, Um and I agree with you. If people, ask, I'm not going to ask you the pointless question of where do you get your inspiration from? Because to me, it, it would it would almost be too hard to turn off. You got it, man. You got it. Yeah. I mean, I there's a uh, um, my my best example of that is um, one of my most appreciated cartoons. Uh, there's a couple having an argument, and uh, the man is saying to the woman. Well, if it doesn't matter who's right and who's wrong, why don't I be right and you be wrong? And I thought of that cartoon in the middle of an argument with my wife. What could be more inappropriate? Um, and my inability to turn it off really came to fore in that situation. So, yeah. 
And you're able to put the pen to the paper. And I mean, how quickly does this come out of you? Pretty quick. I mean, that's right. what's great about it. So addictive about it. Um, you can satisfy your creative urge in a flash. It's, yeah. It's really great. Um, um, we've had a couple of other New Yorker cartoonists. Surprisingly, a couple now at this point. Um, you, have, and you, have, you have my dear friend and much admired colleague, Ward Sutton, on recently. Oh, you know Ward? Ward is an old friend, and I thought that interview was amazing. Oh, my God. I had... Whoa, you, you're blowing my, you know, Ward, that's unbelievable. Yeah. Okay. How cool. How cool. Wow. Yep. That's amazing. Yeah. No, Ward was unbelievable. I had him on. Um, I think we talked about it in that podcast, but yeah, I'm a, I'm heavy into the fish scene. Yeah, um, and Ward put out a piece that to this day in that community is looked at as one of like, you know, the holy grails of fish. So when he came on, and I told him he's a very soft-spoken guy, like, you know, very just easygoing. And maybe as you can tell, I'm kind of, you know, the opposite. I'm just a, I'm a New York Jew. So it's kind of, I'm all over the place. Um, but what, yeah, I, I, I told him at the beginning of the interview, I'm like, don't worry. I'm like, we're not going to go down that. And then he, he started talking about it. So, you know, um, what a great guy. How long have you known uh, Ward for? I've known Ward about since the mid nineties. Um, I I've always been a huge admirer of Ward. He has so many talents and he does everything so well. And what was fun just for a moment, talk about your interview with him. What was fun was that I know him. Ward is the sweetest, gentlest guy you could ever meet. But in the course of that interview, you got a sense of his steely ambition. You know, he knows what he does well and he wanted people to see it. And yeah. um, I was really impressed with that. And yeah, uh, so he's an amazing, amazing. Oh, very, very awesome. I mean, everyone listening to this podcast, listen to the other podcast. And yeah, check out his. How did you guys initially get into contact? Did you meet? I think he contacted me, uh, asked me a few questions about the New Yorker. Um, okay. Remember, uh, he, he lived in the West Village. Mm -hmm. uh, and I just liked him immediately. And um, we've been mutual admirers. Um, you know, he does everything. I mean, his yeah. political cartoons are amazing. Oh, he's, yeah. He's, he's just a hugely talented guy. I I wish I had his artistic ability. I really uh, do. He'll be very honored to hear that. That's for sure. Um, so I usually, funny, because I usually start the podcast, whenever I see a bookshelf behind someone's head, I, that's usually the first thing I ask, but we started talking about Tom Petty. Um, I do see the New Yorker book. What is on the bookshelf of you, your, you know, a cartoonist, you know, what do you try to pull out for it? You know, inspiration, what do you read? What do you ingest? Well, I, I, first of all, I have to tell you, this is my studio. I live uh, in another part of Brooklyn. So these are only cartoon books, collection, oh, wow. cartoons, um, uh, all kinds of cartoon collections. So that's mainly what I have here. And I use them sometimes I'll flip through them see if I get an idea or something like that. But actually they're just for show mainly because I, I barely look at them. Whereas at home, I have my my books for reading and um, I read just about everything. What are you reading right now? Uh, let's see, I just finished Empire of Pain, the uh, book by uh, Patrick Radden Keefe about uh, the um, uh, opioid crisis mm -hmm. and Sackler family. And, mm -hmm fucking assholes mm -hmm. uh, so i was reading that i'm also a a murder mystery fan um and so i've been i read a lot of that and since i wrote a memoir 
I've been reading a lot of memoirs too, um, trying to see what that's all about. So, mm-hmm. did you watch the HBO uh, two-part series about the opioid crisis? Now that uh, Crime of the Century. Well, that that was based on this book, actually. That makes sense. It have to. Okay. So, and what was the name of that book again? Empire of Pain. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a it's a it's a disturbing story, but uh, worth reading. Um, he he's a terrific writer. He's he Patrick. Keith has written a book called Say Nothing about the um, Irish Troubles. That's uh, it's a novel and it also a terrific book. So I'm a fan of his. He's yeah, we, had, we had an author. She wrote a book, uh, Michelle Gallant. Um, the name of the book, I think it was called The New Girl, but based off the Irish Troubles. And she gave us a huge history lesson on that, which was something I never even really knew about. Um, you're, you're a history guy, right? You were. Yeah, I still, I mean, I, I went to grad. I studied history in college, and I went to grad school in something called Soviet studies, which is basically Russian history. And I've always—I forgot to mention—I read a lot of history. Yeah, uh-huh. I, I love to read history. Um, yeah, I've never lost that that uh, that well, love of history. So. Yeah, in an alternate universe, if you had kept going through grad school, would you what ended up a SUNY purchase history teacher? Like, where, what, what would it be? I would have been, you know, Secretary of State or uh, head of the CIA or something like that. It was Soviet studies. So, you know, it was that uh, thing. But that really wasn't what I wanted to do. I knew that I was going through the motions because I didn't want to upset my father, basically. Uh-huh. Until I couldn't stand it anymore. And it yeah, was- yeah. And then, so how long, I mean, can you, how many cartoons can you make in a day? I mean, people, you know, again, this is something that a lot of our listeners have no idea how even a cartoon gets made. I don't. Um, Do you draw it first? Do you write out the thought bubble first? Uh, How does the process even begin? Well, it can happen all kinds of ways. Um, It can start with a drawing, look at the drawing, uh, think about what a funny line would be for that. It can be something I heard someone say that I, I note or I write down and then I come and I, I read it and I try to turn it into an idea. But mostly it is, like I said before, it's a kind of meditation. And I, I don't mean to say that it's always that fast. It's just that um, I come here, I do what I feel like, squeeze my brain, I, I, tr- I reflect on my experience, I distract myself with this or that, and eventually uh, ideas seem to come. I, it's, it's still amazing and kind of magical to me the way it happens uh especially the ones that are totally unexpected like when you're thinking about something completely different and then this idea comes to you that has nothing to do with that but was inspired by it and it's a good one it's a great feeling when that happens. Mm-hmm. and this all kind of ramped up in 97 you said right that was when the first one got accepted that's the first one got accepted in the new yorker yeah and mm-hmm. then enormous things for my self-confidence and I was able to be more and more productive after that actually. Um, How many cartoons have you done in your life? Oh, about 10,000 I think. Really? You have enough? Really? really? You think? I, I, I don't know if that's accurate. Uh, thousands, I can say that. Thousands. And, and I think I've published about 700 in the New Yorker. So um, a lot Do you ever do an anthology? Do you have a, have a thick book, you know, like that, you know? I no, um, I I published a bunch of collections back actually before I was in the New Yorker, and I've been in a lot of New Yorker collections. But my ambitions have changed. I um, I got into 
I decided I wanted to write as well. And so when I think about books, I think about that rather than a collection of cartoons. Um, so, yeah. And so with the memoir, when did you start working on that? How long of a process was that? Was it a grueling process? Well, uh, to answer the how long thing, I, I, I wrote, it took about three years to write, but um, in around uh, 2013, uh, I started writing these personal history essays for The New Yorker, and um, I've written about 16 of them. And that's when I kind of discovered that I really liked writing. Um, I'd always been afraid of it because what I described to you, this process of making this short form creativity of the single panel cartoon, is it, it, when you get into that, it's hard to imagine doing anything that takes longer. Um, but the more I wrote, the more I discovered that writing on a good day could be that experience, one experience after another. And um, as soon as I figured that out, I got comfortable with writing and I, I became enamored with it in a way I hadn't been with anything really. And um, so I was writing these essays uh, until somebody said to me, you know, you should really write a memoir. You've written all this stuff about your family. Okay, I thought that's that's an interesting idea. I did a cartoon recently of a, a, a woman sitting at her laptop and uh, poised to write and on the laptop, it says, uh, nothing remotely interesting has ever happened to me, a memoir. And that's sort of the way I felt at first, because I felt like, well, my life, everything's been kind of ordinary. But my parents and my sister continued to sort of be these compelling presences in my mind. And I thought, there are stories there. And so I started writing about them. And I, start, and I started, literally started the book in 2018 and um, took, yeah, took about three years for the whole thing to come together. Uh, so, yeah. Were you surprised at how, once you said, you know, once you started doing it, you kind of, you know, got enamored with it in a way you never felt before. Were you surprised at how easy this stuff kind of came out? I mean, was it coming at you so quickly you couldn't get it on the paper quick enough kind of thing? Some days, but I'm sure you know, as a writer, there are good days and bad days. Oh, um, yeah. But, the problem for me has always been getting started. Um, uh, like I would come here in the morning and I would think, oh, fuck, I don't, I don't know, I have anything to do. Yeah. Then you kind of learn to force yourself just to start. And yes. um, as I said, there were good days and bad days. And on good days, it was pure pleasure. But there were also days when nothing happened. And there were also these other times when you write, I discovered, which is when you're riding the subway or you're walking down the street or you're in your therapy session or you're watching television with just like with the cartoons, this, I, I, I the most vivid thing is that I've always had a lifetime difficulty with insomnia. Oh, while I was writing the book, I mean, late at night, I'd be lying in bed. It's two in the morning. I can't sleep. And the reason I can't sleep is that I'm I'm rewriting paragraphs in my head that I'd written the day before and grabbing my phone and making sure I put the changes in because I would obviously forget them the next day. So when the writing sort of took over my life, I, I, I've never been as happy as a working person. Um, I felt like I, I really had a purpose. It was really great. Um, 
Kind well, of correct me, well, correct me if I'm wrong. And that would be the total opposite in my mind of cartooning because would you have any insomnia over cartoons? I mean, when you write a cartoon, when, you, when you're done, it's done in your mind, right? You never really mess with them after the fact. No, and I don't show them to anybody before I send them in, not even to my wife. Um, I've always been, for some reason, I've always felt like that is my road and I'm on it alone. And I've never lacked, I've never lacked the confidence in that side of my work. And so I've never, it's never kept me up at night. Um, sometimes, you know, you have a dream when something funny happens and you wake up and write it down because uh-huh. of the soon. But um no, the writing was a very different thing. It it, it kept me up in a good way um, because uh, I love being obsessed. I, I, I really like that feeling. And um, that's what happened in the course of writing this book. Uh, yeah. So what is life like nowadays? What do you, you know, what gets you motivated to keep writing these cartoons? Well, uh, there's never any uh, lack of motivation to write cartoons as I think I said before, it just kind of happens. Uh, there's nothing I can do about it. Um, the ideas keep coming, thank goodness. Um, so mostly I'm doing that and um, I'm trying to think of what I want to write next. Um, I'm not really sure what that's going to be, but I know it'll be something. Long uh, form or cartoon? I think a long form. Something. What are you thinking? I'm hesitant to say because it's oh. a I've made about six different starts on six different things. The thing is that um, I've kind of written out my family. I've done that. And that was the big idea in my head. And now I need, I'm searching for an idea that's equally compelling to me. I, mean, I have an idea. Okay, let's hear it. I'm ready. Write a fictional story about a New York cartoonist. I've never, I don't think there's a book out there about a cartoonist. Uh, let me write that down. Why um, not? Okay. I mean, you know, I'll write it for you. Um, okay. Yeah, I don't think so. Now that, you know, again, because the cartooning thing, it's, you know, in most people's minds, you know, you think of peanuts and you think of, you know, like Snoopy, I, you know, that, that's what comes to my mind. But like, it's an, it's a really niche thing. There's a lot, you know, for people who don't like, we were talking about Ward before, like you see a Ward Sutton cartoon, you're like, what the fuck is this? Like, if you don't know who Ward is or his art, you know, that's not even an art form most people even think about. Yeah. Um, so in my mind, yeah, you know, you know, you could write an easy fictional 1983 New York City, 35 year old ca- cartoonist. Uh, that to me, that's a universe right there. OK, I, I'm I'm serious. Right? I give that thought. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you'll, you'll be in my acknowledgments. I promise you. I guess. Yeah, no, I'll, I'll ghostwrite it for you. That's hilarious. Um, yeah, no, to me, that's a. So what's uh, I mean, you know, as we wrap this up, I mean, because I'm going to be I'll be heading to New York back home in a couple of months. What uh, how's how's the vibe there? Is it going all right? Is it, uh, you know, not right now. I mean, things yeah. are things are really weird. I'm I'm here in Dumbo in Brooklyn, yeah. which is a very lively neighborhood with lots of young people, um, lots of young businesses. And the streets are deserted. I mean, yeah. no, nobody's around. Um, I, I'm in a building with about 50 small offices. Yeah. And some days I think I'm the only person here because this Omicron thing has got people totally freaked out. Yeah. Uh, so uh, the vibe is a little scary. I mean, I, um, I hesitate. I mean, what's great about this conversation is we're not wearing masks, which is... Oh, well, yeah, I know. I get it. Yeah. So... Uh, yeah, and New York, but they say that this thing is going to happen fast here and then go away fast. So we're all hoping for that. 
Yeah. Yeah. I'm not too concerned. Um, yeah, no, I, I, you know, I've been in SF for 10 years now. Um, but I never lived in Manhattan. Um, I never, you know, I never experienced that. Um, and I'm kind of happy I never did it in my twenties cause I probably would have drank it away and I would have not, not remembered it anyways. But, uh, yeah, one of these days, you know, I'll, you know, I'm a, it's like a Jewish thing. You go back, it's like, that's our homeland, right? You go back to New York and like, it's either there or Florida. Um, and I think I'm not ready for Florida yet. <laughs> yeah, me either. I'll never be ready for Florida. No, no. You don't think it's going to happen? Not for me. No way. No. Um, I'm going to live the rest of my life in Brooklyn. That's all. Well, the, se- I- the, sec- the second book can be about a retired cartoonist living in Boca Raton. You are just full of ideas. I I, it's, I, again, like you said, I have a hard time turning it off a little different. Well, David, this was an absolute pleasure. I appreciate you really taking the time out of your day to do this for us. All right, Michael. It's been a pleasure. 